1: We still don't have a sense of whether the coronavirus is contained or can be contained. There still are questions being raised about the numbers coming out of China. Apple is saying that they will not meet their revenue forecasts for the first quarter in light of some of the sales disruptions in China. And yet, markets incredibly resilient in the United States. Joining us now to find out exactly how much longer markets can remain this resilient, Phil Orlando, Chief Equity Market Strategist and Head of Client Portfolio Management at Federated Herman joining us by phone. Phil, you've been a bull. You've gotten it right for a long time. You've been heavy into the big tech giants. I'm wondering from your perspective, at what point do you throw in your cards and say, you know what, this is going to be a longer term issue for the tech giants? Uh, What's going on in China?
2: So uh, thank you again for having me on. Um, I'm not sure that we're going to throw the towel in. Um, I will absolutely concede that the market, uh, except for, you know, a 3% correction over about six trading days at the end of January, has largely ignored the coronavirus. And and uh, in my humble opinion, I think this situation is going to be potentially bigger than than people think, and we're just today getting the first snippets of economically related news investment related news on coronavirus witness uh, you know Apple talking about having some supply issues and and Walmart talking about uh, you know having missed uh, on on Christmas, particularly January, maybe some of december i'm not sure exactly where the details are uh, in part based upon uh, coronavirus and and we also know. But a couple of the other retailers, uh, Kohl's and Target, have had disappointing numbers. So uh, I think there's going to be more of this going forward. Um, as we looked at the retail sales numbers that were related to the street for the Commerce Department on Friday, um, Christmas was pretty good. And and as we define Christmas, because of the, the the extraordinarily early Thanksgiving and the way uh, the Black Friday weekend was sort of split up half in November, half in December. Companies were making a concerted effort to start to advertise and move Christmas product in the month of October. So our view was, okay, let's just define Christmas as October, November, December, and January because you've got gift card redemptions. So as we looked at the data for those four months on a year-over-year basis, retail sales were up 4.1%. That was a pretty good Christmas, so I'm fine with Christmas having been good. Coronavirus um, really didn't start to become part of our nomenclature here in the States until about the third week in in January and has now really started to you know catch some uh, some some traction here, looking at coronavirus versus SARS back in the 2002-2003 neighborhood, the total confirmed number of cases for SARS was 8,100. We're, we're already north of 73,000 with, with uh, the coronavirus, with no real end in sight here. And our best guess is that this is going to continue for at least another couple of months, and that's got to take into account... Um, retail sales numbers being sloppy in February. Maybe that spills into the Easter season. And I think we're going to get more guidance down from companies who are going to use coronavirus as a justification for why their numbers are coming in you know, softer than expected. And I'm not sure that any of that is, is yet in the market with the market having done as well as it's been doing.
0: So, Phil, are you in the camp that I think is gaining some more members every day? And that camp is, if the coronavirus does have a meaningful economic impact on global economies, the central banks are there waiting to respond and lower rates and be uh, you know, s- supportive?
2: We're, we're absolutely there. But I don't think our Federal Reserve is going to cut interest rates because I don't think – The coronavirus situation is going to be, uh, from a time standpoint, um, we think it's going to have a significant first quarter impact. And I think as we get into the second quarter, the middle of the year, I I think we're going to have our hands around this. Um, We are doing much better looking at coronavirus compared to SARS. One of the things we're focusing on is what's known as the mortality rate, the percentage of people who died from this. With, with SARS, that mortality rate was just under 10%. With the coronavirus, the mortality rate right now is running about 2.5%. The, the Chinese government, as, as, as much as, as we think they're being irresponsible here in terms of transparency and letting the world know what's going on, et cetera. when we look at uh, COVID-19 versus SARS – they have been much more aggressive by, you know, a period of about a month to six weeks in terms of letting the world know what's going on, giving us the sequencing. U.S. Uh, global pharmaceutical and biotechnology companies are actively working on some some compounds that that might have some promise in terms of vaccines or, you know, medicinal purposes or whatever. So I, I truly believe, in my heart of hearts. That, that as we get into the second quarter, working towards the middle of the year, we're going to have our hands around this, and we're going to see these numbers start to recede. So so it's ugly right now. Um, we're going to see a hit to GDP growth. We're going to see a hit to corporate earnings. But as as we look at the balance of the year, I think we're we're looking at a snapback uh, as we get into the middle of the year, and and a strong second half of the year. And I think that's why we're seeing a limited market responds now, I think investors to some degree are sharing that view and perhaps looking through the ugliness of what's going on right now.
1: Right. Well, that's exactly where I was going to go, which is you said that you don't think markets have been pricing in the real potential implications of the coronavirus. It sounds like they're not because they're expecting a V-shaped recovery in the economy and therefore there isn't going to be a longer lasting effect. Are you in that camp where you're not going to change any of your positioning in response to what we're seeing over in China, just with the expectation of this V-shaped recovery?
2: We, we have not made any changes in terms of positioning. We made some changes in positioning at the end of last calendar year in terms of uh, taking domestic large-cap growth from overweight back to neutral and upgrading domestic large-cap value from neutral to overweight. Uh, we've got overweights in domestic small-cap, Um, And we also added an overweight to emerging markets, which in in light of what we now know with coronavirus, maybe that was uh, a little premature, but we're going to stick with it again because we think of the, the relatively short lived nature of what we think we're dealing with right now.
0: Hey, Phil, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate your thoughts, as always. Phil Orlando, Chief Equity Market Strategist and Head of Client Portfolio Management at Federated Hermes, uh, joining us on the phone. Uh, Phil has remained, as you, uh, you noted, Lisa, consistently bullish. Uh, he's been consistently right. Uh, I think I appreciate his thoughts on uh, the coronavirus, how, you know, kind of putting a time frame on it, kind of bleeding into uh, the second quarter, but then uh, becoming less of an issue in the second half of the year. That's, I think, how they are discounting the coronavirus there at Federated. Well, our good friends at Walmart uh, reported earnings this morning, kind of a mixed bag. The fourth quarter, the all-important holiday quarter, a little bit uh, weaker than expected. But the full year guidance for 2020 pretty much in line with what the street was looking for. So the net net on the stock is it's up about eight-tenths of 1% today for Walmart. To get a sense of what's going on at Walmart and all things retail, we turn to our good friend, Bert Flickinger, Managing Director, Strategic Resource Group. He joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So, Bert, a little bit of a mixed bag out of Walmart. What's your key
3: takeaway going forward with these folks? Uh, two, a couple things, Paul and Lisa. One, Walmart's insulated because they sell more fresh food, refrigerated, uh, frozen and fresh than anyone else. So, it's about two-thirds of their business. Uh, so, Walmart, uh, like Costco, which hit a 52-week high on the Bloomberg Terminal today, too, uh, forward-looking They've both invested tremendously in technology for the last 30 years. So the market's looking at Walmart's CapEx uh, being a little bit less in technology compared to uh, competitive peers. And secondly, uh, that Walmart and Costco have strategically invested in distribution centers and inventory. So despite tariffs, coronavirus, and sourcing more locally within uh, the continental US, uh, Walmart has some longer term advantages for the next couple quarters most of their competitors, uh, don't come close on.
1: All right, let's put the coronavirus aside because they basically have not put that into their assumptions in any way. Uh, It's unclear how they're going to be dealing with that. Just talk about the fact that they missed expectations when it came to revenues in the 2021 EPS uh, forecast. This has been completely shrugged off by markets, yet this comes after Target also disappointed. I'm wondering how much we can read into this as a trend. Does it say something about the consumer? Does it say something about Amazon.com, you know, rolling up all of the market Mm share away from uh, the Walmarts and the Targets of the world?
3: Lisa, it says yes to all of the above. It says uh, the Amazon roll-up. It also also says uh, despite Targets miss, in our pricing studies, Targets still a little bit premium priced. In uh, our pricing studies with Walmart, for the first time uh, in five years, Walmart's uh, line price with the low price leaders, uh, Winco in the West, uh, Costco nationally and internationally, so as you and Tom Keen talk about uh, very well frequently, is while Walmart's investing more in lower prices, Walmart's units are up at the same time as you're presently pointing out. Uh, the consumers are facing higher monthly budget expenses in 10 out of the top 11 areas. everything except gasoline. So uh, rent, tuition, uh, insurance, it's uh, taxes, et cetera, et cetera. So the consumer's more cash constrained. And as people look at where the consumer's going, raw stores on the the Bloomberg Terminal, 52-week high today. Bloomberg uh, Burlington on the Bloomberg hit a 52-week high today. Uh, Lowe's and Home Depot in terms of category dominant earlier today, 52-week uh, high. So the consumers are going where the best prices are, and uh, the best prices are with the big retailers that are off price, price impact, or destination that have procurement power. But also, I want to make sure to catch A key point you referenced is is this sustainable? It might be sustainable for a quarter or two of the 52-week highs within retail. Fresh Pet hit a 52-week high today. That's sustainable. Not sure chain retail is sustainable. Not sure Amazon's sustainable. So let's talk. I know uh,
0: Walmart's having an investor day uh, today, so we'll get some more news out of that throughout the day. But one of the places I always look for Amazon and, and Target, and I mean Target and, and Walmart, to see how they're competing against Amazon is their digital. Sales. So another 35% growth in the digital sales for Walmart. That's good, but it's slowing a little bit, but still pretty
3: solid. Digital sales and uh, consumers who historically might have only been able uh, to, to get to a Walmart uh, once or twice a month. Uh, Mark Laurie, uh ex, ex of uh, Amazon and uh, acquisition by Walmart of Jet, will be able to deliver uh, from Walmart super centers to 90 percent of U.S. homes within the continental U.S., and uh, Walmart's brilliantly put FedEx uh, depots within its stores so people can buy at Walmart and ship either within the U.S. or outside the U.S.
1: At what point do we have to start worrying about the consumer and how much momentum there is if where they're going is raw stores, is the discounters?
3: We have to, Lisa, we have to start worrying about the consumer now. Uh, the telling period is gonna be Memorial Day to Labor Day where the consumer, uh, as Bloomberg reports, uh, has rep- been traveling in record numbers, uh, spending in record numbers, but looking on the Bloomberg, uh, even before Ryan Newman's tragic death in uh, NASCAR yesterday, NASCAR attendance is way down, and that's no, I think, a leading yeah, I think indicator. He's just a correction: he, out. he, he he's still he, he's he's alive. He's in serious Thank condition. You. Thank yes. you. He's alive. He's in uh, serious hearts condition. Hearts and prayers, yep. and uh, appreciate the uh, uh, timely correction. Yeah,
1: and it's actually his injuries uh, are not life threatening uh, after that that horrible crash. Um, But he, it seems like, is going to uh, emerge. But really interesting. uh, And thank you so much for being with us, Bert, uh, because this is, I think, one of the big questions when I came in. Walmart disappointing after Target disappointing. You know, a knee-jerk response might be to say, is this concerning? You look under the hood, a lot of factors at play, but certainly heading into this period of the year, important to watch to see if it makes a trend. uh, And we will have you back to discuss that. Bert Flickinger, Managing Director at Strategic Resource Group, joining us here in our interactive broker studios. And interesting to see how Walmart shares, really resilient after uh, missing estimates on a whole variety actually gaining today. Uh, They're up eight tenths of a percent. Not a massive gain, but given the fact that the broader market move is lower and that they missed expectations and that they still are gaining is somewhat notable. The big news, one of the many big news items of the day, there actually are are a lot that are sort of dominating. On the corporate front, yep. On the corporate front is the tie-up of Franklin Resources agreeing to buy Leg Mason to create a $1.5 trillion giant. This comes amid a slew of consolidation among asset managers. Annie Massa covering it all, investing reporter for Bloomberg News, joining us here in our interactive broker studios. Can you just take a step back and look at how significant the wave of consolidation has been in the past say five to 10 years within the the asset management space. Sure,
4: as you mentioned, I mean, you can really just rattle off these big um, episodes of mergers and acquisitions in the asset management industry. You saw Invesco by Oppenheimer Funds, you saw Janice Henderson, Standard Life Aberdeen, and this is just the latest in that wave of consolidation that we're seeing as active managers are trying to You know figure out how to navigate um, an increasingly passive investing world you just kind of need scale to be able to compete.
0: So give us the again the rationale is scale so are we simply are these companies simply saying I can see the pressure on my revenue line I don't think that's going away anytime soon so I just got to get scale and try to rationalize my costs is that kind of the play here?
4: Yeah, if you look back over the past 10 or 15 years, both Legg Mason and Franklin Templeton have seen their assets under management um, kind of come down from their highs. So now, as you mentioned, you have um, $1.5 trillion in assets in these combined firms. It also fills in some gaps for Franklin, um, particularly on the fixed income and alternatives side. What's the price tag being viewed as in the market? Um the deal is valued at about four point five billion dollars. and is that viewed as too much, too little? Um I think it's valued about as it, about in line.
0: So how about when I think of big mutual funds, uh, obviously I start with fidelity. Do, do we see fidelity on the m a trail often? I can't think of some I can't think of any big deals.
4: That's a good question. Fidelity has often been one to really go it alone, but fidelity also has the advantage of being just one like a giant already. It's really for the slightly like middle size, uh, can't really pass uh, a trillion dollars in assets where you're seeing this kind of consolidation. Neither Leg or or Franklin was really able to get there on its own. So now tying them up, they can finally get past that trillion dollars in assets kind of mark. It helps because um, technology is increasingly costly for these asset managers. And and if you can spread out some of those costs across all these different assets and then also off for
1: different product lines, it really does help to be more of a big supermarket. Do you have a sense when you speak to analysts uh, who've been watching this space for a while of who some of the next potential contenders are for, for potential merger activity? Yeah, that's a good
4: question. Basically, um, what, what we're looking at here is some of these... Uh, acquisitions that we've really seen in the space have faltered a little bit or not been as successful as they were otherwise thought to be. So I think that that's leading to some questions about whether these deals actually pan out and work. Um, In some cases, like uh, the Janus merger, you actually saw client outflows in the wake of those um, in, in the wake of those tie ups. So it's not always um a very uh beneficial thing in the aftermath one thing that they mentioned on the conference call is that leg mason will kind of um, maintain the independence of all these different affiliate asset managers that it works with and they're hoping to um hang on to those client assets and stem some of those client outflow potential client outflows that way
0: You know, when I think about the pressure on the fees and due in large part to this move from active to passive, is that a global phenomenon or is that more in the the U.S.?
4: It is a global phenomenon. I think you're really seeing a lot of this happening in the U.S. because that's where the largest asset managers are based. uh, And that's both on the active side and the passive side
1: what about the alternative side I mean how much are that is that the area that people are looking to for the fees and just trying to get scope with respect to passive and then go into you know the more liquid securities type of type of trade
4: it's a really good question alternatives are becoming so important for pretty much all asset managers and we saw um, even last week with Vanguard's foray into private equity, and and BlackRock made a similar push into alternatives as well. Even the the giants of index investing can't ignore alts. So especially on the active side, um, a firm like Franklin wants to bulk up in alternatives.
0: Are we at the early stages or late stages of this consolidation, do you think?
4: I think that we're still going to continue to see consolidation in this industry. There's so much pressure on fees for both active and passive products, um, and scale has become so important. It's this barbell where you have to either be a behemoth that offers everything or just so niche, and in between, you're going to struggle.
0: Annie Massa, thanks so much for joining us. Annie Massa, investing investing reporter for Bloomberg News, joining us here in a Bloomberg Interactive broker studio.
1: Jeff Bezos, who is, of course, the founder of Amazon, announced that he is committing $10 billion of his own wealth to fighting climate change, whose biggest philanthropic effort so far. And it comes after a substantial pressure from within the company, from workers, saying that the company is not doing enough to fight climate change. But it really raises a question, what can the biggest companies do? What kind of meaningful changes could they make to reduce their carbon emissions and fight the rising climate? Joey Bergstein joins us now. The Chief executive officer of Seventh Generation, which is based in Burlington, Vermont. It was acquired by Unilever, uh, but it really has been uh, one of the biggest speakers out in terms of corporate responsibility in this area. Joey, I'm really glad you're joining us today. I want to get your perspective on this $10 billion commitment that Jeff Bezos made. Where do you see the greatest need for that kind of money to actually combat uh, some of what we're seeing with respect to emissions?
5: Thank you very much for having me on, lisa. it's uh, It's great to be with you and really applaud the commitment that Bezos has made to to addressing what is the biggest crisis of our time. And um, it's really important from our perspective that companies do take real and meaningful action to to address climate. Uh, as we look at what's going on in the world around us, we're really focused in three different areas. One is, uh, the products that we make and ensuring that we're creating products that actually have the low carbon footprint. Um, a great example of that is an ultra concentrated laundry detergent that we launched over a year ago um, that we sell on Amazon and um, appreciate the support that we get from the Amazon team on on that part of our business. Uh, we tax ourselves an internal carbon tax that we can then invest to address um, our own carbon footprint. And then I would say the third thing is that we're really looking at. How do we clean up the energy grid in this country? And would love to see investments being made much more broadly by companies across the U.S. to really clean up our own uh, energy grid. What we've discovered is that when you look at our full carbon footprint from making this stuff or growing the ingredients on a farm through to the production process and getting it into the hands of people to use, actually 90% of our carbon footprint comes when you and I are washing and drying our clothes at home. And as clean as we can make our own operations, the only way to truly address the impact of, of business is to clean up the energy energy sorry energy grid. And uh, that, for me, is the top priority for us in, uh, in this country.
0: So, Joey, how, how do you do that with a company? Just take your company. How do you think about and try to address the energy grid? That just seems like a huge uh, issue that might be outside of your natural kind of day-to-day business.
5: Yeah, it's monumental, actually, Um, and it is outside of our day-to-day business. So a lot of the work we're doing in that space has been around advocacy and working with grassroots organizations across the country to try to move cities and states to make commitments to clean energy by 2030. We think with those commitments in place that these cities and states will actually take the action needed to address the energy grid. In 2018, we set out working with Sierra Club and other grassroots organizations to try to get 100 cities to make such commitments. By the end of the year, uh, 108 cities have made commitments. Um, and I think we're up to over 150 cities and over seven states making these kinds of commitments. Joey, and so that's really the the role of our advocacy work to to try to address this issue situation.
1: It's a big question and a big concern for a lot of investors who are trying to follow ESG requirements. And there's a question that gets raised, especially with this sort of $10 billion commitment that sort of thrusts this whole effort into focus today. How much can we tell whether a company is just paying lip service to the idea versus actually doing something meaningful with reducing their footprint?
5: That's a great question. I think It really starts with making big, bold commitments, because addressing a crisis of this magnitude doesn't happen just by business-as-usual kinds of action. So I I applaud companies' commitments. It's also really important to consistently report on what actions companies are taking. So we publish an annual sustainability report. Uh, We track ourselves every single commitment that we make and how we make progress year after year. And I would expect that other companies are doing the same things it's, it's really not enough just to make the commitment but to, to also be very transparent about what actions are, are actually being put in place
0: hey joey thank you so much for joining us really appreciate uh your thoughts on this important topic and one a topic that's growing uh in influence joey bergstein ceo of seventh generation uh based in burlington uh, vermont joining us on the phone uh it's interesting to think about you know you, environmental, social governance, it's becoming a bigger part of uh, investors' uh, view of companies and industries. And uh, there's a lot of data out there. There's a lot of data on the Bloomberg Terminal that tracks uh, some of the metrics as it relates to ESG. And we're hearing more and more uh, investors, whether it's uh, hedge funds, portfolio, uh, uh, you know, mutual funds and institutional investors really focusing on ESG.
1: Yeah. I mean, I do think, though, we've moved past the point of just saying, okay, what have you put out there that you're doing to fight Climate change into, okay. well, how effective are some of these measures? And I think, you know, when you look at Amazon, for example, there's been a lot of pressure internally about changing some of the practices of the company. And then there's a question of how Jeff Bezos is even going to deploy $10 billion because a lot of these uh, upstart organizations Are are small. Yeah,
0: exactly right. But that $10 billion is a big number. Gets everyone's attention.